Support for this podcast is provided by Avalara. Since 2004, Avalara's vision has been to harness the power of cloud technology to help simplify sales tax for businesses of all sizes. And their solutions are designed to affordably scale with businesses as they grow. Collecting tax for the government is something businesses just have to do. But getting the job done efficiently and correctly can be an incredible challenge because tax rules and regulations can be endlessly complicated. Avalara keeps track of how thousands upon thousands of products are taxed in more than 13,000 tax jurisdictions, and that's just in the United States. With more than 1,000 signed partner integrations, Avalara likely integrates with the ERP, e-commerce, mobile payment, and point-of-sale systems you use today. Find out how your business can be sales tax ready at avalara.com slash taxnotes. That's avalara.com slash taxnotes. Avalara, tax compliance done right. Welcome to Tax Notes Talk a podcast from Tax Notes, the leading source of tax news, information, and analysis. Welcome to the podcast. I'm David Stewart, Editor-in-Chief of Tax Notes Today International. This week, Pillars in Peril. As the OECD seeks to finalize work on a two-pillar solution for taxing the digital economy, the project is facing some serious headwinds. With opposition asserting itself on both sides of the Atlantic, where do things stand now and how close are we to a final agreement? Tax Notes chief correspondent Stephanie Sung Johnson will talk about that in just a minute. Later in the episode, we'll hear from Tax Notes international author Hayden Wardell Burris about his article which lays out a Pillar 1 design proposal that leverages Pillar 2. But first, Stephanie, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me again. First, could you give listeners a brief overview of the OECD project? Ah, this is always a challenge because it's never brief, but I will try. You may have remembered me talking about this project. It's a two-pillar project. It's an outcrop of the Action 1 report from the OECD BEPS project in 2015. And Pillar 1 provides for the formulaic reallocation of a portion of residual profits that the very largest multinational enterprises make um, in jurisdictions where they have consumers. And then those market jurisdictions would be able to have a taxing right that they call Amount A over these residual profits. Amount A requires a multilateral convention for implementation, which will also formalize a country's commitments to withdraw any unilateral digital services taxes and what they call relevant similar measures. They promise to withdraw those measures and refrain from introducing new ones in the future. Pillar 1 also includes Amount B, which represents a fixed return uh, for baseline marketing and distribution activities in market jurisdictions that are in line with the arm's length standard. And the plan also includes dispute prevention and resolution mechanisms to enhance tax certainty. Pillar 2 sounds a lot simpler, but is actually not. Um, it ensures that large MEs pay an effective minimum tax rate of 15% in the countries in which they operate. This is primarily done through a top-up taxation regime called the Global Anti-Base Erosion Regime, or GLOBE rules, as everyone likes to call them. Pillar 2 also includes GLOBE implementation framework and the subject-to-tax rule, both of which are still under development. The subject-to-tax rule is a treaty-based rule under which source jurisdictions can impose a top-up withholding tax on some related party payments that are taxed below a rate of 9%. That's it in a nutshell. Okay. Well, I'll go on record as saying I don't like calling it the GLOBE proposal, but that's fine. (laughs) Better the GLOBE than (laughs) GLOBE, which I've heard too. Yes. Agreed. So you alluded to the fact that we've been talking about this for a while. Where do things stand now on the development of rules to implement these pillars? Okay, so for Pillar 1, Amount A, 
the status on that is that the Task Force on the Digital Economy, which has been leading all this work since it began many years ago, the task force is supposed to develop Mount A model rules and commentary and a multilateral convention and explanatory statement to implement this Mount A taxing right. And to get there, the OECD has been holding what they call a series of rolling consultations on the various elements of Mount A, you know, such as scope, revenue sourcing, and nexus rules, tax-based determination. They also consulted on the nature of the carve-outs that they provided. This includes the extractive and regulated financial services industries. And just recently, the OECD, they published what they call an amount A progress report, which is just essentially a summary report of all the work done so far. And it also includes some new elements such that have been, you know, that have not been consulted on yet, such as double taxation relief and the what they call the marketing and distribution profit safe harbor. So this document just came out. Public consultation is going until August. It sort of gives everybody, all stakeholders, a sense of what amount A is going to look like because a lot of, a big complaint that taxpayers had was that, well, we can't really see how these rules are going to fit together because we're consulting on all these separate parts of amount A. So, you know, we need to see everything in one go to see how things are fitting together. So this is sort of that attempt to give stakeholders that chance to review amount A in its entirety, almost entirety. Still work to be done. I assume they're going to do another consultation of this kind after they've finished up this one. So we'll see. I guess we'll have to stay tuned for that. For Pillar 2, the OECD published model rules in December of 2021 and accompanying commentary kind of explaining those rules and giving more guidance that happened in March of this year. And we're now just waiting for the implementation framework and the subject to tax rule multilateral convention or multilateral instrument to implement that. So Pillar 2 is further along than Pillar 1. Pillar 1 has been delayed. Initially, the OECD and the Inclusive Framework had hoped to get a multilateral convention for Mount A to to be open for signature by the middle of this year, but that's definitely not happening. So the OECD Secretary General uh, recently told the G20 finance ministers that you know, we're going to have to wait. <laughs> um, work is ongoing. And we're now looking at a mid-2023 timeline for getting that multilateral convention ready for signature. So, so yeah, that's where we stand. Support for this podcast is provided by SafeSend. Now is the time to focus on firm preparation because same as last year is no longer working for your staff or clients. It's more important than ever to assess current firm processes and make improvements. The SafeSend suite automates manual, labor-intensive tasks across the tax engagement, from engagement letters and client organizers to assembly, delivery, and e-signing of tax packages. The SafeSend suite makes it easy. Automation is transforming how firms work. Schedule a demo at SafeSend.com to get started, and smile knowing that you will be ready for next tax season. So there recently was a meeting of the G20 finance ministers. What came out of that? So usually at these meetings, we usually expect like a, what they call a communique, where all the G20 finance ministers sort of agree on the wording. But this time they came up with a chair statement, which is interesting. I suspect it has something to do with um, Russia being part of the G20 and maybe not everyone's on the same page on issues. So the G20's chair summary you know, just had a small paragraph about tax reaffirming the group's commitment to swiftly implementing the two-pillar solution. And, you know, it's it was very forward-looking and, you know, didn't 
to me, when I read it, when I read it, it didn't seem like they were going to let up. Like they were not discouraged by any of the hurdles that are in the way of implementing Pillar One and Pillar Two. They said that you know they they called an inclusive framework to finalize Pillar One, including by signing the multilateral convention in the first half of 2023. Also, they called the inclusive framework to conclude negotiations to develop the multilateral instrument for the subject to tax rule under Pillar Two. They also ha- actually the G20 also had a tax symposium, which they usually do. And the main theme at that tax symposium was that developing countries really need a lot of help in implementing and administering Pillar 1 and Pillar 2. So, you know, I, to me, the, the chair summary was optimistic and, you know, still full steam ahead. But you can kind of see that there are some some difficulties ahead, but the work still keeps going. Well, let's let's talk about those difficulties because there's been... A fair amount of drama. We'll start with the EU. Uh, could you tell us about what is happening there? So the EU was pretty much, everyone considers the EU the first mover on implementing Pillar 2, because after the OECD published the model rules in December 2021, the European Commission published a draft directive for the adoption of the GLOBE rules in the EU. But as you alluded to, there was there has been a lot of drama surrounding this EU-wide adoption of Pillar 2, because the EU requires unanimity among all EU member states to adopt any directive that has to do with tax. So all EU member states except Poland had agreed to adopt the GLOBE uh, Pillar 2 directive at the Economic and Financial Affairs Council's May 24th meeting of this year. So that was a bit of a surprise because we all, everyone thought that maybe Hungary would be the one to be the main, the main holdout. But Poland ultimately lifted its opposition to the directive at the ECOFIN June 17th meeting, but then Hungary changed its mind and vetoed the directive. And then after that, the Hungarian parliament adopted a resolution to reject the Pillar 2 directive. So now Hungary is the holdout, and countries have been really trying to get them on board but the Hungarians have been very it's interesting because the Hungarians initially agreed, but then they changed their mind. And then they went on this offensive in the press, the U.S. press and the Hungarian press about how Pillar 2 is terrible for their country. And Republicans seized on this and started corresponding with the Hungarians about sinking the Pillar 2 directive and the Pillar 2 in general because they think that Pillar 2 is going to be bad for U.S. businesses. It seems that it's a, I mean, it's obviously a political play, because the Republicans wanted to sink Biden administration's plans for Pillar 2 for global minimum taxation, because global minimum taxation was a big cornerstone of the Biden administration's agenda. So, so yeah, it's been really weird. It's been very interesting, really weird to to, to report on, but Fascinating. Meanwhile, at the, the U.S. Treasury de- suddenly decided that they would terminate the 1979 U.S.-Hungary Treaty, citing Hungary's opposition to the Pillar 2 Directive as a reason, which was another twist in this ongoing saga. So kind of an odd move because the 1979 treaty is the old treaty and the U.S. has been trying to approve a new treaty with Hungary, but that has been stuck in the Senate for a long, long time. So I don't know what exactly is going to happen, but, you know, keeps me busy and interested and our readers 
happy that I'm, I don't know, that we're covering all this because it's really is, a, it really is a bit of a soap opera. I can totally see like a Netflix special about all of this because I think it's fascinating. Well, I, I think you might need to write a treatment on that when this is all said and done. <laughs> All right. So so why don't we turn to you mentioned some letters, some correspondence from Republican lawmakers. How is implementation going in the U.S.? Well, the Biden administration actually managed to get. So the main things that the U.S. needs to do is reform its guilty regime, which the guilty regime actually inspired those globe rules in some ways. But some changes are needed so that the guilty is more in line with the globe rules. So they have to change the rate. The U.S. has to change the rate to 15% and also change the regime so that it applies on a jurisdictional rather than worldwide basis. So those are the two main changes they need. It's not perfect, but it is enough for other countries to accept the guilty regime as a qualified, what they call a qualified income inclusion rule under Pillar 2. And so the Biden administration did manage to pass those two changes in the, through the House in the Build Back Better Act. But as you all know, the Build Back Better Act has been stalled in the Senate for a long time. And of course, you know that the Democrats hold a razor thin majority there. And, you know, we, the administration needs the Senate to pass these changes. So recently, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, he went on West Virginia radio and said that he is not going to support the minimum taxation provisions in any bill. So that is going to be a hurdle because Democrats or the Biden administration needs Manchin's vote. But, you know, politics, we'll see what happens. I guess there's a lot of that going on at the moment as we've got, I guess, a sort of unanimity rule in the U.S. Senate, uh, at least for the Democratic caucus. What's next for the project? Where do things go from here? You know, I think it's just going full steam ahead. Just kind of keep going. Actually, someone asked me, you know, why don't they just why don't we just stop this madness? You know, but you really the OECD secretariat cannot stop unless someone tells them to. So until that happens, unless until a G20 says, OK, we're abandoning we're abandoning all of this. They're just going to keep going. So uh, the next steps, I guess the most immediate next step is the um, amount a consultation. I understand that the amount a consultation meeting will be in Paris sometime in the September. So stay tuned for details about that. And yeah, I guess just, just keep on keeping on at this point. All right. I'm sure you'll keep us up to date on everything that happens going forward. Stephanie, it's always great to have you. Thanks for being here. Thanks. Good to be here again. And now, coming attractions. Each week we highlight new and interesting commentary in our magazines. Joining me now is Acquisitions and Engagement Editor-in-Chief Paige Jones. Paige, what will you have for us? Thanks, Dave. In Tax Notes Federal, Stephen Curtis breaks down Cisco's cost-sharing arrangement and explains how corporate taxpayers have been able to exploit the cost-sharing regulations to shift billions in profits offshore. Caroline Rule provides an overview of how an employer may offer tax-deductible abortion-related travel benefits after the recent Dobbs decision. In Tax Note State, three cost professionals examine key issues regarding state sales taxation of digital commerce. Naomi Tayedev examines California's taxation of non-resident individuals and trusts. In Tax Notes International, Hayden Wardell Burris wonders if Pillar 2 can be used to save Pillar 1. Paolo Pantagini and Antonella Cayumi 
comment on the EU's proposed debt equity bias reduction allowance directive. In featured analysis, Joe Thorndike questions if slumping stocks will do market-to-market tax reforms. And now, for a closer look at what's new and noteworthy in our magazines, here's Tax Notes Executive Editor for Commentary, Jasper Smith. Thank you, Paige. I'm here with Hayden Wardell Burris, a researcher at the Oxford Center for Business Taxation, who is also completing his PhD in law at the University of Oxford. Hayden, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we're here today to discuss your Tax Notes International cover article, Can Pillar 2 Be Leveraged to Save Pillar 1? Can you give us a brief overview of your article? Sure. So I'm effectively looking at this question about how Pillar 1 can be designed in a way that will be acceptable to the inclusive framework and whether there are any opportunities to leverage devices within Pillar 2 in order to achieve that outcome. And so so stepping back as to what Pillar 1 is trying to achieve, we're effectively looking to reallocate some taxing rights towards the market jurisdiction. So we currently tax in the places of production where employees and so forth are located. That's where profit is, is currently taxed. And market jurisdictions are saying effectively, hey, we should have a certain taxing right over profits related to our jurisdiction. And so Pillar 1 creates this concept of amount A, under which there would be a reallocation of residual profits towards market jurisdictions. And this leads to kind of three big questions. First, how much should amount A be and how do we tie it to each market jurisdiction? And I don't really address that in my proposal. Uh, The second question is, well, how do we impose this additional taxation when there might not be a resident entity in the market jurisdiction? There might not be a PE there either and other jurisdictions might be treaty protected. And then the third question is, how do we identify a jurisdiction that's going to give up some taxing rights so we avoid double taxation? over the amount that's been reallocated. So my proposal focuses on the last of those two questions. How do we impose this tax? And then how do we identify the seating jurisdiction? So, and in both cases, I look to infrastructure from pillar two, which would be able to assist us doing that. So in terms of imposing the liability, the aim here is to leverage the concept of a top-up tax under pillar two. So pillar two effectively says, if there is undertaxed, if there are profits which are undertaxed in the source jurisdiction, the source jurisdiction can tax them. But if they don't, we're going to impose top up tax somewhere else in the group under the income inclusion rule or the undertaxed profits rule. So there's really no incentive for the ME not to pay the full amount of tax in the undertaxed profit jurisdiction. We can leverage that mechanism in the context of Pillar 1 by effectively saying, well, if the amount A allocation for a particular country is imposed on the group, the group can pay that liability or we're going to impose top-up tax, uh, additional top-up tax under the IAR or UTPR. Now, the aim here is not to collect that tax under the IAR or the UTPR. It's just to create the right incentives for the multinational group to pay the market jurisdiction, even if it doesn't have a taxable presence in that jurisdiction. And in the article, I go into some mechanisms by which we can create the right additional incentives rather than just making the M&E indifferent to whether they pay top-up tax or the market jurisdiction. So that answers that second question on imposing the tax liability. Tax Analyst is proud to announce a partnership with the American Bar Association Section of Taxation to launch the Tax Analyst Public Service Fellowship. This new two-year fellowship offers practicing tax attorneys the opportunity to work in public interest tax law with a nonprofit or government entity. For the inaugural year of this fellowship, the sponsoring organization will be La Posada Tax Clinic in Twin Falls, Idaho. 
the tax section has opened the application period for the inaugural fellow. Applications are due July 29th. Applicants should have three to five years of experience practicing tax law and be willing to relocate to Twin Falls, Idaho. For more information and for links to apply, see our press release at taxnotes.com fellowship. That's taxnotes.com fellowship. The second and more controversial issue which I try and address is how do we identify the seeding jurisdiction or the jurisdiction that's expected to give up taxing rights. And here I say we can leverage the pillar two concepts of excess profit and effective tax rates. And I effectively say we should take jurisdictions with excess profits and we should make the seeding jurisdiction be that with the lowest effective tax rate. And the theory behind this is driven by the idea of, well, where do multinationals move their uh, mobile income? If, we, if we're, we're shifting, the concept of residual profits is that they're mobile in the M&E and they're not tied to the market jurisdiction. So where are M&Es currently locating these excess profits? They're doing that in low tax jurisdictions. And therefore, those are the right jurisdictions from which we should take the current taxing rights and reallocate them to the market jurisdiction. Now. That has some key benefits in terms of how the rules would apply in practice and, and hopefully how acceptable they are to key jurisdictions. And I think we just have to own up to there's a clear political imperative to get the United States on board. And part of designing the seeding mechanism in this way means that the US is generally unlikely to be a seeding jurisdiction because it's not likely to have the lowest effective tax rate of the entire multinational group. Insofar as there are excess profits being booked in the United States, they mostly come from the US market. Whereas if there are excess profits being booked outside the United States, excess profits that are coming from out, uh, the rest of the world are more likely to be booked there at lower tax rates. And so insofar as we're pushing for a bipartisan consensus to say, get this through the Senate uh, in the United States, this makes it more attractive. But assuming we can't get bipartisan consensus in the United States, Something that works quite well about this design is that it doesn't require Senate ratification. It would allow for domestic legislation in the United States to implement the rule set. And it could do this by effectively domestic tax changes, which would prevent double taxation arising if uh, the United States were identified as the seating jurisdiction, but also to ensure that the United States could pick up its own amount A allocations. And the perhaps even more controversial part uh, of this design is that a question arises to whether or not the proposal could work even prior to domestic legislation in the United States on an interim basis. I'm quite clear that I think it's important to have domestic legislation and for the legislation to pass Congress for legitimacy reasons. But if this design very rarely identifies uh, the United States as a seating jurisdiction, we might find that the mechanism can effectively work in operation without the United States passing extra legislation and we could relieve double taxation in those rare instances through other mechanisms. So that's effectively the proposal I put forward and there's a short summary of it, or there's a, there's a that proposal's outlined uh, in the Tax Notes International piece. And then there's a more detailed paper underlying that, which is a Oxford Center for Business Taxation working paper that's available online. We definitely can hear from your description of the article, uh, the importance of such a topic, but was there anything specifically that prompted you to write about it? So my work is mostly focused on pillar two, and I, I wrote an article recently for tax notes about whether or not the interaction mechanism between CFC rules uh, and pillar two. 
But in my work focusing on Pillar 2, I certainly have been thinking about the incentives that are created and what's available through that infrastructure. And naturally, uh, Pillar 1 discussions do come up and it seemed to me that there was an opportunity to bring those two together. And that was really the origin of the idea. Very nice. Well, thank you again for the description. I'm sure our readers are now uh, looking forward, if they haven't already, to going and, and checking out your proposals. In addition to the article, can you explain to the listeners where they might be able to find you online? Sure. Well, I'm on uh, LinkedIn. I've got a relatively rare name, so I'm easy to look up. And I'm on Twitter. I'm not particularly active on Twitter beyond posting uh, new material that I put out, but I've, I've been enjoying engaging with those uh, discussing these ideas as well. So we'd love to hear from your listeners on one of, one of those two platforms. Well, very nice. Thank you. And, and thanks again for coming on the podcast with us today, Hayden. Thank you very much for having me. And for listeners, you can find Hayden's article online at taxnotes.com. And please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tax Notes, for more in-depth discussions on what's new and noteworthy. Again, that's Tax Notes with an S. Back to you, Dave. That's it for this week. You can follow me online at taxstew, that's S-T-E-W, and be sure to follow at Tax Notes for all things tax. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for a future episode, you can email us at podcast at taxanalyst.org. And as always, if you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating or review wherever you download this podcast. We'll be back next week with another episode of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Notes Talk is a production of Tax Notes. You can learn more about us by visiting www.taxnotes.com podcast. When major media wants the straight story, they turn to Tax Notes. Thank you for listening and join us again for another edition of Tax Notes Talk. Tax Analyst Inc. does not provide tax advice or tax preparation services. Nothing in the podcast constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice. A full disclaimer is included in the transcript.